Hello, everyone. This is Neil Piper, Executive Director at the Presidential Precinct. Today, I'm excited to welcome you to a special season of our Global Founders podcast. Over the next few weeks, we're sharing conversations with Mandela Washington Fellows at the Presidential Precinct. Alongside co-hosts Will Amaker and Benjamin Hotchner and faculty from across the precinct's five partner sites, Mandela Washington Fellows are leading conversations around the world's most pressing challenges, including human rights and justice, governance and democratic development, access to education, and more. Then after the episode, you can learn more about the Mandela Washington Fellowship by visiting presidentialprecinct.org forward slash LMWF. Welcome, folks. We're here today at James Monroe's Highland. We're sitting down with Hewan Berhani and Sarah Bonharper to discuss cultural heritage and architecture. So to begin, can you tell us a little bit about yourselves, your involvement in developing and protecting history, and the initiatives that you both work for? Okay, my name is Hewan Goitun Berhani. I am from Ethiopia. Um, I'm an architect by profession. I am currently specializing in conservation of urban and architectural heritage. I co-founded an association that is dedicated to the preservation and protection of heritage buildings in Ethiopia. I am currently working on a project that is uh, structured in a way to first create awareness and use involvement and also uh, inventory and documentation of uh, heritage buildings in Addis Ababa, then we will uh, expand into other cities in Ethiopia. So basically, this, that is my uh, background and what I'm working on currently. I'm Sarah Bonharper, and I'm the executive director here at James Monroe's Highland. Uh, by training and practice, I'm an archaeologist. And my role here is in public history, essentially. So engaging the public with stories about the past um, and, in fact, directing new research and creating new narratives here. Uh, our most significant uh, research in the past handful of years has been um, in the re-identification of the standing building here on site, long thought to be uh, a remnant wing of Monroe's main home, um, that we now understand uh, is his presidential guest house built in 1818, um, and then the identification of the archaeological remains of the actual main house, which was built in 1799. So this upends our uh, understanding of the site and opens the door to all new interpretation, which is a really exciting moment and a, and a great place to be. Thank you so much to you both for your fascinating introductions. Both architecture and culture are highly dependent on place. In your case, Hewan, it's you can see your focus is in Addis Ababa, while in your case, Sarah, your focus is here at James Monroe's Highland. How do you think architecture can tell us a story about culture? Okay, for me, <clears throat> architecture is a crystallization of time. I can shortly describe it like this because it will show everything that a society was doing 
and it's like a key to solve many of the our ambiguous questions about the past and also it's like how how you study cultural anthropology basically lies in architecture and i think it's it's the foundation of understanding our past and protecting it will be a very i don't know i i i'm so passionate about it so i cannot find a, a suitable word to express how important it is to protect our past in order to look towards our future i think i think that's a good response that you just gave and i agree i think that architecture is one of the more enduring cultural statements and one that is available to us in the present so it's a great way of understanding um values and activities and society in the past um i think uh, understanding the built environment um is one way we can really engage the public with um what people were thinking in the past um making that leap um into people's imaginations um to really put themselves in uh in those contexts to understand what people were thinking and doing and, and what the what those what those times meant um i work hard to reach people's imaginations um and i try to build an empathy for people in other times and places and architecture is one of the ways we recreate those experiences for the public The US and Ethiopia both seem to be at a cultural crossroads. Americans in recognizing some of their failures of their founding fathers have started to pull away from such an unquestioning vision of America. Similarly, Ethiopia in developing into a nation from multiple ethnic divides has a number of separate cultures. How can we effectively use our understanding of our past to change our future cultural narratives for the better? Okay. I think uh, history uh, is a way to understand our past but also to learn from our mistakes. So what has happened for me it's what has been done is done. There's no way to change the past, but we have a choice and we have uh, the the opportunity to define our present and how we look towards our future. This is uh, this is our privilege. So I think for for my country as you said it's a very difficult time because we have been programmed for the last 27 years to be ethnically divided and we are like on a competing situation that my ethnic group is better and the other saying my ethnic group is better so I think understanding first understanding our heritage would help us n- uh, not to make the same mistakes and also to learn from all the good things that have been done in the past so that's my opinion um people have always used the past um and created narratives to um further any particular agenda national narratives certainly are um well known to us um if you look back on the last couple of generations of US history for example um a, a high water mark of um passion for american history in this sense of the exceptionalism of the founding era was around our country's bicentennial so 1776 to 1976 you know there was this real fervor for 
um, narratives for public site visitation for um, this period of U.S. history. And it only makes sense now that those waves are um, receding and being replaced by more inclusive narratives. And it sounds like um, your country and our and our country here have similar um, situations where we are looking at um, multivocal um, stories. Um, we're looking at inclusive histories, um, looking at ways of, of gathering multiple narratives into one big fabric of history. And that's one of the biggest um, movements in public history um, here, especially in our context in presidential history um, here in central Virginia, where all of the presidential sites have, have long since been working on um, including stories of the enslaved, including history um, of the descendants and their own lived experiences. And so um, I don't for a minute think that our version of history is the final one. Mm -hmm. I will acknowledge that we, like others, use narratives about the past. Um, we try to be ever more inclusive, ever more truthful, and reach for the best authentic histories we can. Um, but to be aware of, of how we're doing it and what contexts we do it um, feels important to me in acknowledging um, a certain level of humility in that in another generation, people coming after us will have yet another uh, wave um, and the way they experience and tell history. So we just keep working on it <laughs> and hope that um, our, our efforts are ever closer to um, a full and accurate telling of the past. I would, I would like to share one experience of my country. Uh, about uh, 25 years ago, uh, our late uh, uh, prime minister, Mala Zenawi, he uh, closed all history departments in universities, claiming that uh, our history, our past history is not, our past history is not, um, comprehensive of all nation nationalities and peoples and uh, it, he wanted to make a statement that to make uh, to have in order to create an inclusive environment we need to have a, a history that represents all of us but for me being inclusive is not um, uh, we cannot go back and ch uh, go back in time and change history uh, we can be truthful but we could not go back and involve people who are not part of the history. So we tell it how it is and how it was. So uh, this was a very big mistake and it created a very huge gap in our uh, hist uh, historical understanding and also heritage conservation because we now lack in any interest in heritage amongst the youth. With architectural archaeology and architecture itself, it can often be difficult to discern what is a small piece of the story and what is a story itself. In your work, how have you addressed the challenge of presenting history as flexible? What are your greatest hurdles in preserving heritage in the face of development and modernization? I think uh, making, uh, creating an environment where our heritage can serve a present purpose would be a very good way to have our uh, history to be more uh, flexible. But I, I don't I don't believe history can be flexible because history is what something that has already happened. 
so that we can uh, be flexible in how we use it for our present purpose. So we have to, uh, for me, uh, when I work on heritage buildings and finding new purpose and like uh, adding new function to a building, I just concentrate on the value because different buildings have different uh, historical value and heritage value and how we uh, use them, how we uh, modify them and how we transform them transform them depends on uh, the value of the heritage. Uh, I am for, I can give you an example that uh, our Rokhaeon churches, they cannot be uh, redefined and serve a present purpose. They are still serving as a church, but we cannot change them into, dramatically change them into an office or into a residence, but we can be more flexible in the more, in the less valuable buildings as like if they were residents, we can make them an office. So these are the approaches I am trying to use because we have to meet this develop me, uh, development needs uh, and we cannot be stubborn and we cannot uh, afford to uh, lose the argument that we are uh, stuck in the past because we have to be flexible in order to uh, make a point that we are also looking towards the future. I think that's a, a, a great answer for that that second part about development and how we adaptive, adaptively reuse buildings really has to depend on what the building is. And I think you said it, it's value or how rare it is. Um, and that, so I, I like that very much. Um, so let me address a little bit um, that first part about knowing that we are um, not dealing with a complete data set. Um, archaeologically, uh, that's one of the real basics. We don't ever have all the information uh, that was present um, in the past. We don't have all the physical remains, and we certainly don't have the social systems, which are no longer extant. Um, I think the way we address that, of course, archaeology has lots of um, great analytical methods for dealing with that and making good uh, site interpretations and um, interpretations of of artifact assemblages. Um, but from a, a holistic standpoint, I think really um, here, uh, that exact question is an entry point for engaging the public. Um, people like to be a part of the story. They like to be engaged in that learning. And so what we have found here is that inviting people to witness the story as it's unfolding, to be in dialogue um, as uh, our knowledge grows um, incrementally has been uh, a really key point for us. And so um, just to be upfront about that, say we don't know everything there is to know now, but we... Um, we're learning, and here, come come and learn with us. We'll, we'll tell you how we are making the interpretations we are. We'll tell you how we transformed our our biggest understanding of the site. And, and please do follow along as we find out more. Uh, there's plenty left to do here. Sarah, you mentioned engaging the public in this developing narrative. As you said, the U.S. is at an all-time low in visitors to historical sites. How do you think you can bring the public to visit the sites and monuments to learn more about our collective history? Well, I think, um, you know, a lot of what we studied yesterday in our work together with the Mandela Washington Fellows from uh, my framing first thing in the morning and talking about um, exactly this question um, through 
um, the afternoon session where Gina Haney talked about cultural values, um, really it's a question of, of what needs are there in our community? How can we involve people in a conversation that's of interest to them and valuable to them? So we see a lot of historic sites now offering different kinds of experiences, um, maybe in addition to the traditional tour, having dialogues. For example, our um, our our uh, our specific uh, program about slavery is not a tour or a lecture. It is a drop-in station where people can just discuss. Our guides who have studied and discussed and, and worked hard at, at gaining the knowledge then um, invite people into the conversation, um, sort of meeting them where they are, bringing them a few steps further, um, exploring with them. So that's the kind of engagement that uh, is more um, in demand right now, and really it's, it's, it's um, tailored to the individual, and that's the kind of thing that we do to be flexible and to gain, um, to, to offer a point of interest for people. Um, so we, you know, we need to, we need to treat history differently than we used to, certainly being more inclusive. Um, I think, you know, in, when we're talking about inclusive history, um, there is both the topic and how we present it. Um, and then in, in a third sense, there is who is doing the interpretation, um, right? Our descendant informed interpretation here where we're launching a new um, phase where our interpretation of slavery, race, and the legacies of slavery um, will be advised by a group of descendants who have agreed to meet um, at least a couple times a year to, to talk about how we're doing it, what are we included, including and how are we saying it. And then um, how we actually deliver this um, is also a point of, of being more inclusive. So if you look downstairs at some of our, our new signage, um, we have bilingual signage. It's in English and it's in Spanish. Um, this, I hope, is an invitation to more people um, to say, look, this history may be of interest to you. There are essential pieces, um, certain values that uh, we hope are relevant beyond the circle of traditional visitors of the historic site. And, and we hope that invitation works, and we hope that that statement also is clear to anyone who visits, saying this isn't the same old history. This is a history that is relevant to um, a broader public. Uh, we hope. And so these are some of the things that we do to try to address those. When I want to add on uh, your point, uh, first, uh, we, uh, in my case, uh, my our first project in my association, it's the survey and mapping uh, of uh, heritage buildings in Addis Ababa. And uh, the way we involved the youth and the community is that we recruited uh, undergrad students from architecture, urban planning, and any other field which they feel, if they feel they're passionate to be involved. So uh, we didn't hire professionals to conduct our survey. We gave them training on how to, based on our guidelines, to, on how to collect data. So this is how we involved them. And the next step, uh, like the, the next uh, project we are planning, we are planning on studying and understanding of how to transfer heritage buildings because most of them are owned by the government and they are currently serving as a multi 
family dwellings, like 90% of heritage buildings are like this in Addis Ababa. So we are trying to design a guideline to transfer them into private ownership. And doing while doing that, our core like principle is going to be how that building is going to be accessible to the public because the society has to see how, how a heritage building can be transformed and how it could serve a purpose in the present. So we are like we are trying to develop this type of guideline in order to restrict investments and involve the public. And Taiwan, thinking back to Ethiopia, developing countries often face a presumed dilemma and dichotomy between modernization and development and conservation and heritage. Why do you think conservation and heritage is important? Well, <clears throat> uh, there are like I can give uh, two examples. Like the first one is any building that is that has served, be it hundred years, be it ten years, be it five years, is more sustainable than any other building that would be built after that building would be demolished. That is a scientific fact. So conservation is not just about history; it's also about sustainability. Sustainability. And we, as a developing country, I don't think we have the resources to waste. We're bringing down buildings, building something up. I don't think we have that kind of resources. And we need to cultivate on what we have and what we can, uh, what we can conserve. And the next point is to build something new. There's everywhere else. We don't need to sh- cast a shadow and what is already existing. And that is my, my, my uh, second point on <laughs> why conservation is uh, important. And besides the other, the heritage, the historical, the identity value uh, of uh, heritage. So. That's a beautiful answer. Focusing on conservation. How do you decide what you leave as it was found, as opposed to presenting it as it was originally supposed to be? It, it all depends on uh, be, uh, conservation and heritage is a very fluid subject. It's all responsive to each case and it's uh, what the actions you take are uh, specific to each case. And it, it also goes back to the value, the value of the building, what you will alter what you will keep, it all depends on the value. So I, I don't know how to answer that, but it depends on the specific uh, questions. But for me, uh, conservation, when we intervene and when we restore, we have to be visible, we have to be bold because people should, and we, we don't want to be, uh, we don't want to imitate. We also want to make our own statements and people should clearly understand that what was original and what was uh, added later and conservation uh, the conservation process can also be used like um, we can represent some part of uh, the building to mark uh, the conservation era also you know if you alter something in that conservation process it will be a marking point of what you did and future generation can understand the layers of conservation conducted on that building also, so we can use it in a very smart way uh, and uh, understanding each case is different from uh, each other. 
And I think um, part of that value that you mentioned is also um, the the public value. If you think now about our specific circumstance here um, at Highland or at similar historic sites, which is a little bit different from, say, an urban context of, of public and private land use, um, at, at these historic sites, part of the value is how well we can illustrate uh, maybe a certain time period or activities in the past. And so uh, what we're trying to do there, our goals, uh, are really what's going dis- to dictate whether we leave things as they are, sort of with accreted pieces and uh, a multi-phase uh, present, or whether we strip things away and cre- return to or recreate um, a certain period of the past. That's one of the biggest questions um, yeah. in the preservation world, and yeah. that that's often called scrape and anti-scrape, whether we, we take off all the later uh, yeah. elements or whether we leave them yeah. on. And, and you know, great minds have, have written about this, yeah. um, but I think it really has to do with, with what our goals are, and that's yeah. where the value lies. Yeah. And to add on that, different uh, conservators' uh, approach is, is it's very diverse. Some of them uh, would want to be very bold and they want to be very visible uh, because they think uh, like imitating every element of the building, they think it's unethical because we can never be authentic. Conservation can never recreate what has been. It can only preserve and restore. And they think that adding new elements would would be uh, like would be a way to carry the buildings from the past towards the future. So there are diff- different theories, and it's a very <laughs> it's a very tricky uh, field. So you have to be very smart and very considerate of the value of the building. Thinking again about architecture and history, it has the power to divide, as we've seen in the continuing dialogue about Confederate statues, and include people in this physical space, like you're trying to do here at Highland. Sarah, what do you think has been done to make this environment at Highland more inclusive, and what still needs to be done going forward? Uh, Well, there's always a lot more work ahead of us, and we're committed to doing that. Um, So in terms of inclusivity, uh, you know, the things that we can mention, you know, I touched on the um, multiple languages in our signage, which is an invitation and a statement. Um, the inclusion of diverse narratives um, and then how we tell those narratives um, from a multivocal perspective. You know, if we introduce James Monroe's presidential guest house and say that he built it for his um, guests while he was president and so forth. Um, That's one way of presenting it. Um, But then if you look at our augmented reality tour, um, that building is first first presented there. It's introduced by um, the animated characters of two enslaved people who are discussing the enslaved carpenters who built the building and talking about their personal experiences building the building. So instead of um, giving primacy to um, that particular, um, you know, Monroe presidential um, giving experience and giving him all the agency, we have also um, found a way to introduce um, one of these elements on our landscape of in, in introducing that element um, in a way that 
invites people to imagine the experience of others. And so a, a multivocal history or sharing perspective. Certainly there's things that we're going to talk about, Monroe and his political accomplishments, his the long reign of his career, um, but also including the stories um, from varied perspectives, I think is one of the ways we can make an inclusive history. Um, you know, the the statues um, in Charlottesville is certainly a case that, you know, to turn back to the very beginning of our conversation today, um, I talked about the way we use the past in our narratives about the present. Um, you know, we, we do that on a national level. We do that on a local level. We do that um, uh, for certain ethnic, political, heritage um, causes in, all, all across the board. So um, also being aware and being sensitive to, to those uses and, and what they mean, what, what is the value that they're evoking. And hey, Juan, how do you think your work is contributing to a shared sense of identity and culture going forward? Well... I think uh, it's a very tricky question and it's it depends on how you view inclusiveness uh, because as an Ethiopian uh, we are we share uh, all this heritage together it's not just one ethnic group's heritage and it's uh, I think the question should lie the the focus should lie on our sense of nationality because if we if we develop our national pride it will automatically make us make us uh, feel included in the process of heritage conservation. I can give you an example of Eritrea. Uh, the city of Asmara is currently registered as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Uh, the it's a colonial uh, period architecture. It was uh, designed by Italians. All the urban uh, layout, each building is designed by Italian architects. And to, through the process of uh, this registration, uh, m many conservators, urban planners, architects, historians even, were claiming that uh, this, uh, uh, this city it doesn't represent the uh, heritage or the history of Eritreans. But the arguments they made, like Eritreans and the Eritreans who were pro uh, in the process of the registration, the arguments they made is that it's the labor of our ancestors and we are very proud and uh, after our freedom we were the one who occupied those buildings so we we are they i said we are stating the history as it is and we are proud of it so i think in a way everyone is involved in the history uh, whether be it in a small way or in a very large impact everything everyone is involved and as any ethiopian whatever history, whatever ethnic group's history or heritage, for me, I consider it as myself. And the question lies for us as a country in the building this the national feeling. Thank you both so much for your wonderful dialogue today. If anyone gets the chance, I highly recommend scheduling a visit to James Monroe's Highland just outside of Charlottesville. And if you'd like to learn more about what Hewan is doing in Ethiopia, click the link below. <laughs>